0: Uh, when you get to 200 meters beyond that, it's a deep sea, and people think, well, that's not of concern to me. Basically, well, actually, it is because most of your planet is that.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> it, sh- it
0: should be of a concern in terms of responsibility to try and understand how the planet functions and what lives in it. If you imagine, and it's all driven by people's weird relationship with depth i think it's because we're air breathing mammals we just hate the idea of depth we call it deepest darkest fears for a reason we hate depth and we hate the dark and unfortunately the deep sea has is all of that all of both (laughs) so the problem there is if you were to say for example from now on let's go back to when we knew nothing about the rainforests i said right here's the entire amazon rainforest we're going to study everything in the first 200 meters and the rest of it, forget it. It's just deep forest. It's just monsters of the trees. We've got no interest in that whatsoever because let's face it, none of us are going to really ever go beyond 200 meters into this forest. So we'll just write off the rest of the Amazon basin. Oh, that's a great analogy. But that's exactly what you do for most of the planet. You know? And the same analogy. with Antarctica. You wouldn't just go 200 meters into Antarctica and go, right, see the, the rest of this entire continent, which by the yeah. way is minuscule relative to the deep sea. Yeah. Forget it. It's, not worth it. it's not worth a hassle. It's too difficult. It's expensive. And let's be honest. It doesn't give us anything.
1: I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, You'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you. And also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to com. Did you know that most of our planet is deep sea? It's true. The deep sea floor of just the North Atlantic Ocean alone is larger than the surface of the moon. My guest today is the world's foremost expert on the deep sea. I mean the very deep sea, as in over 8 kilometers or 5 miles deep. Dr. Alan Jameson has been on 70 expeditions aboard some 26 research vessels and has done more than a dozen submersible dives deeper than 10 kilometers or 6 miles His countless discoveries in marine biology have garnered multiple Guinness World Records, and he has personally named several dozen previously unknown deep-sea features. Not bad for a small-town kid from Scotland who disliked academics, graduated from art school, and found himself working as a hauler on a moving van crew, wouldn't you say? You're in for a real treat, as Alan tells us how serendipity shaped his path through life how he pioneered the design and construction of the deep sea robots that have taught us so much about this fascinating realm, and the varied adventures and discoveries he's had along the way. Alan and his family moved recently to Perth. That's the warm Perth in Western Australia, not the chilly Perth in Eastern Scotland, by the way. And he joins me now from their home. Alan Jamieson, I have heard about you for, gosh, coming up on two years since I had the chance to join the pressure drop and sail to the Western Pacific and wanted to deep dive into your deep dive work. But it's a delight to have you on the Zoom with me. Hello.
0: Hello. It's a pleasure yeah. to have you.
1: For our listeners, we're, we're doing the really mega time zone thing here because Alan's, Alan's in Perth, Australia, where it's 9 a.m. in the morning and proper tea time. And I'm in Columbus, Ohio, where it's 8 p.m. and really getting well onto adult beverage time. But we'll just we'll just make that work, right? No
0: problem. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you're a Scotsman, as I think probably everyone can tell already from your first couple of words. Where is your accent from?
0: Uh, it's a bit of a mix between Glasgow and Edinburgh. And I actually spent most of my time in Scotland living in Aberdeen. So it's probably a weird hybrid of many different dialects within a small country.
1: <laughs> Interesting. Who was Alan Jameson when he was a very young boy? What what was he interested in and what kinds of things was he up to? Good student, bad student, all that kind of stuff?
0: I was a terrible student. I mean, I think a lot of people look back at things like high school and, and really resent it and hate it and they still have all sorts of issues. I loved it. Did you? I just didn't. I didn't do very much. I wasn't particularly academic and we had a great time. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and then I went to university in Aberdeen and... I didn't study biology at all, or anything marine. I had no aspirations whatsoever to ever be a scientist or do anything at sea. I did an undergraduate degree in industrial design. Why? I don't think I was a particularly good student at that either. I I think it was just, you know, I I got a a pretty good degree at the end of it. I think the last year I I kind of ramped up a bit and realized that I should maybe get my act together. And then uh, everything just sort of spiraled out of control and lots of accidents and happy circumstances and so on, and, and it led to this.
1: So I still want to back up a bit. What kind of interests did you have as a kid? I mean, you ended up in in industrial design. Were you you know, handy with cars or handy with stuff or why university at all? And why that line of study?
0: I was to think what what I was really into when I was little. When I was little, I was certainly girls, yes, music. Girls and music, yeah, I used to play drums in a band. Yeah, that did was you? my thing. That's that's what I wanted to do when I was a teenager. I used to play in, in bars and stuff like that that's what i really really was into as a teenager but of course you know you can't go to your parents and say actually i don't want to go to university what i want to do is be a drummer in a rock band because <laughs> that's the, you know they're not going to go okay then <laughs> yeah that was my big plan before that i mean i remember at one point before i was really into airplanes i used to sit and draw make up my own sort of airplane designs and stuff like that and i can still see a little bit of that because i still design my own land systems. i still design gear for eleven thousand yeah. meters and there is a little bit of an element of just sort of sitting down and, and drawing stuff like you did when you were. 10 years old. And you know, I was always really, really big into Star Wars, I think, as everyone else was growing up in the in the 80s. And it was just Star Wars was your life. And and I can still see elements of that in what we do now. You know, it's it's oh yeah, you know, crafts and vehicles and going out yeah. in big ships and stuff like that. You know, it's it is a weird there, there are sort of strange elements of, of childhood in what we do.
1: It's weird how the bits come together. I I designed my brother and I grew up in Southern California. We had a you know the typical backyard swimming pool for Southern California. And it was the, I'm a lot older than you, it was the um, Lloyd Bridges, Jacques Cousteau era. And we wanted a clubhouse, but we wanted ours to be on the bottom of our swimming pool. So at like age nine, we sat down and drew very crude drawings. But, you know, we understood the part about, you know, if you could take a cup and push it down under the pool and anchor it to the bottom, there'd be air in it and you could go hang out there. We got that part and we wanted windows, of course. The rest was Mm -hmm. all,
0: the rest was all pretty sketchy, but so what did your parents think of that, of the two of you getting into a confined air pocket and going down the bottom of the pool?
1: Well, my father was an aerospace engineer, so he, since we had the first order physics roughly right, I think he was not too upset at all. And I was enough of an odd, adventurous tomboy as a young girl that I think my mother probably had already given up on me and just resigned herself to her fates. So he didn't say no. I mean, he sort of... Talked through the design with us, and as happens with nine-year-olds, then you just quietly let it die an easy death, and you go on to the next bag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well. yeah. So I'm still curious whether you had something that shifted you towards industrial design. I mean, seventeen. Most people don't even know the label industrial design. What does that even mean,
0: right? Yeah. So industrial design is is some, somewhere between design which is making things look pretty and sellable and all the rest of it and engineering which, which is making something that absolutely works but it's not necessarily something which is practical right so the whole, the whole concept of product design or industrial design is to try and marry the two together where you're trying to think cleverly you're trying to trying to get an idea that work uh trying to give an example an example of that is actually my, my project which was a lander believe it or not was why is subsidy equipment so expensive? Why can't you mass manufacture this stuff? Why is it? Why are they always one-off, really expensive yeah. builds? Why can't we just run stuff off on a production line? You know, I guess Henry Ford is possibly the first industrial designer where he looked at the car and went, "That's just far too expensive. No one's ever going to buy this. Let's be clever."
1: We got to be able to make ten thousand of them. Yeah,
0: yeah. And then you got, then you got to be smart. You got to look at, you know, having, you know, as many components exactly the same and having many materials the same, and and not, and you start you trying to break it down into something which is attractive that people look at and go wow i want that that's beautiful and also that's affordable mm. <laughs> because you know beautiful everyone wants an aston martin but you know aston martin don't run off production lines in the same way as, as as other things do so to me i didn't i didn't really enjoy the academic part of university i enjoyed the social life and stuff i thought that was great i, I was actually based in an art school so i used to hang out I, my flatmates were really? oil painters and yeah some of them quite famous now i have got paintings hanging in all sorts of places but so I used to hang around with sculptors and artists and stuff, and I, I didn't have much to do with the people in my class. I don't know why. I just sort of leant towards the more artistic side of folk. And the reason why I did that at university is because when I was at high school, the only thing I thought I was ever good at was technical drawing. I just wanted to do technical drawing. Uh, and I still do. I've even been doing it last week. <laughs> so I've got something being made right now, which is really cool. Did your high school have a course in technical drawing? They did, and my father was a draftsman. He used to design stabilizers gears for ships and cranes, and he ended up technical director of Rolls Royce Marine. So oh, I wow. used to, when I was drawing pictures of airplanes and mapping out Star War battles and stuff like that, he used to, because back in the day when he, he was in a, an office full of lots of draftsmen who were drawing this stuff on huge sheets of paper, and he used to come home with these massive sheets of paper. When you're a kid, you're like, "Ooh, you're just coloring in technical drawings, or you turn it over and you've got this a piece of paper you don't get down the toy store, right? You don't yeah. you don't get, you know, like A-Zero sheets of paper.
1: Ten feet by ten feet.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was really exciting when he came back. He opens his briefcase. He's like, yep, got some. You know, these were going to go in the bin. And then you spend the night just with your felt-tip pens drawing these ridiculous big things. And so, yeah, so I guess that morphed into, I just wanted to do something that was technical drawing.
1: Did your dad's background influence your interest towards the ocean? I am mean, being with Rolls-Royce Marine and then ending up at the University of Aberdeen, which is right near the
0: scottish offshore oil patch i actually don't i don't think so i think no. what, i mean i know i know, I know the, the exact sparks that led to to this and that was i was doing the technical drawing stuff at, at uni and i was hanging around with a lot of artists and stuff like that and their perspective on life is much more interesting and diverse than the normal guys from the engineering background they were into Reading the sports pages of the paper at lunchtime and talking about football and 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 whatever and arguing over which band was better, or was it Blur or Oasis? And you know, and and, and with the with 2 people, we were all listening to the most bizarre stuff and having more bizarre conversations and a bit more philosophical outlook on life. And so anyway, when it came to my honors year, the, the course was you had Just one like year. It's like a capstone
1: do, year at a British university, right? You yeah, a yeah, It's
0: your it's your big climax to the whole thing. It's a big project that says this is what I've learned, this is what I can do, and. We had one year to do it, and it could be anything. The scope of work was just go and design something from start to finish. And that included business models and, and market research and the you know, whole concept development of this stuff, manufacturing, engineering, all the way to building a prototype sort of type thing. Wow! Or as close to what you can reasonably can. And I, did, I had no idea what I wanted to do, none whatsoever. I was, I was sort of struggling in the first couple of weeks, but I don't know what I want to spend the next year doing, because if I get the wrong thing, this is going to suck, because you've got a <laughs> yeah. year to do this. And I remember I was walking through what's called the St. Nicholas Shopping Centre in Aberdeen. And what the, the cheat we used to do for, for design work is you go to the magazine store and just look at all the tech magazines. Because all the tech magazines have a mix of stuff which is real and stuff which is a bit futuristic and right. a bit off the wall. And you look for the colours and the forms and the, you know, and you get kind of inspired by the latest sort of developments and that stuff. And one of them was, a, there was a, a copy of, it was popular science, I think it was called Popular Science. And on the front cover, it had a graphic of the Tiburon ROV that was about to be made for Monterey Bay. And it just looked cool. It's just an image of the, of of an ROV looking at a big jellyfish, and it was an artist impression of it. So that's a remotely operated vehicle. It's a robot, but it's tethered to a yeah. ship. Yeah, it's about the size of a van and it's on a big umbilical and you can drive it around. It has manipulator arms in the front and cameras and this particular one was going to be really good for midwater. They wanted it to be quiet and stealthy and you could sneak up move on move around it. Yeah. And it certainly a lot of the gelatinous stuff came from that. And it, you know, it was eventually built and it was amazing. Yeah. And it has a huge legacy. And I think it's gone now. I think it's been surpassed by something else. So it yeah, makes exactly. me feel really old. <laughs> so I remember thinking that underwater stuff looks cool. And of course, in Aberdeen, everything is oil and gas. Everything is subsea hydrocarbon industry There's, there are rovs or ships in the harbor you know and, and that just sort of naturally led to thinking well these things are all multi-million dollar things that are not accessible to me or anybody else so i thought well maybe we do something subsea so i thought well why don't we just build or why not design a cheap way of getting instruments down to deep sea floor or whatever and back up again quite quickly which was basically accidentally Developing the lander, which already existed, so I got in touch with a, a professor who was at Aberdeen University. He was at another university, and he said, "Oh, yeah, we do this stuff all the time." So he
1: yeah. he was already building landers.
0: Yeah, but again, they're all one off. They were like a hundred k each. They were, you know, and, and and this to some degree they still are. But they, they were very specific experiments to do with what he okay. was doing at the time, which was tracking deep sea fish.
1: Kind of bespoke kinds
0: of things. Oh, very much. Very, so. very, very much so. Yeah. 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 So I spoke to spoke to him and some of his engineers for a bit, and then went back and and spent a year doing that, and graduated with a good degree, and that was it. And did you build one? I built a replica one. I didn't I didn't build one that would ever work because there's no way we could yeah. afford that with a budget of zero. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, welcome to art school. You know, yeah. a budget of nothing. <laughs> so I built a full size one, and you know, I mean, we stuck it in the pond on the at the university to make it look a bit aquatic and stuff, and took pictures of it and. Uh, but yeah, the idea was you could sort of like mass manufacture it. You could disassemble it on deck. It did It wasn't cumbersome, and and, and it was flexible on what it could take and so on. But you know, in hindsight, there's sort of some elements of that that still exist in the designs that I do now. So again, there's a little bit of that creep forward. But where it went from that is uh, when I left university, I think it was completely and utterly disenfranchised with 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 everything. I ended up as a removal man.
1: What do you mean by that? Do you? I mean, you didn't like academic
0: life, so. I think a lot of people feel this when you leave university because you think you're you're heading up for this degree. You're going to get to this pinnacle where someone piece, gives you a piece of paper and say you're now qualified.
1: Now to it's done. This.
0: And then you go, oh, great! I'm going to go. I'm going to be one of these guys. I'm going to be an industrial designer, now. and then you hit this wall where there's, there's just no jobs for industrial designers. And you're like, okay, this is going to be difficult. I think you, especially as a as a bloke, I think we come out of this quite arrogant and thinking. I've got a degree now i've got an undergraduate degree i'm I'm just going to be this designer now i just need to find what company i want to work for and send them my cv and we'll see how it goes and then suddenly you realize after 50 100 cvs or resumes uh, (laughs) no they don't even get a response (laughs) so suddenly you realize like you know you're broke i was living in a high-rise apartment which was really grim i think we're on the 16th floor and it was like drug dealers and Families beating each other up downstairs, not the rest of it. It was just not very nice. I ended up as a removal man. It was the best job I could get. Because
1: we don't have that phrase across the pond. What's a removal man? Is that a guy who repossesses things they've not paid bills on, or a garbage man? Or
0: a removal man normally is is someone if you're moving house, they come along and they pack up your house and they put it on a van and then build it at your new house.
1: Yeah, the moving van crew.
0: Yeah. So I used to do it for corporate companies, so oil and gas companies. We'd spend a week sorting out a huge big open plan office for some oil company who were moving premises and then come in on the Friday, Saturday and Saturday night and have it all moved and all the computers set up at the other end. So when when they clocked off on the Friday night in one building, they could clock back in on Monday morning in another wow. building and everything is there. So it, it was slightly better money than being the guy in the, in the home removals, but uh, it wasn't very nice. It was a good camaraderie, I guess. And then after a while I got a job, slightly better job as a technician in a high school
1: in a high school wow yeah yeah
0: yeah it was that that was really depressing as well i thought that was one of the the probably the laziest people i've ever met in my life it was really just uninspiring and trying to come to terms with the fact that you know you're just gonna have to cut it in life and try and do whatever it takes to make some money it's no longer about what you want to do it's just about needing to make some money to pay the rent and that's what it did for about a year year and a half or something and then i opened up the newspaper one day when i was inspired to get out of there as quick as possible and there was a job advert for the professor i was talking to at aberdeen university and it was there were three jobs I think it was an electrical technician a mechanical technician and a logistics technician and they were asking for seven years experience phenomenally low salary so i'm like i don't have seven years experience but then part of me even even at 21 years old or 22 or however it was i thought it was really in hindsight i think it was quite smart of me thinking no one in the right mind is going to apply for that salary who's got seven years seven experience. years' experience. Right. So I just put my I just went for it and I got an interview and I and I got the job. And they said, uh, you know, basically you look after the mechanics and help these guys build these landers. And how do you fancy going to sea? I'm like, well, I don't know. And that age you're just like, yeah, whatever. Okay, I'll have a crack at that. And I went to sea. I went out to the North Atlantic on discovery. And I thought it was brilliant. I loved it.
1: So this professor was already working at, at what kind of depths in the ocean?
0: 4800 meters was was considered to be very deep then.
1: So 12 15000 feet for those of us on this side of the pond which is yes there's there's a lot of the seafloor at that depth it's yeah most of the planet's that. Yeah, depth. So yeah. that was
0: kind of standard deep sea depth was would yeah. be the, the the abyssal plains of the north atlantic or the pacific or something like that.
1: RRS discovery royal research ship discovery belongs to the uk government or is it attached to universities?
0: No, it's government. Yeah. Okay. Yep. It's since been replaced, but yeah, the, so the you know yeah, the yeah. ships evolve over time. But yeah, the, the <laughs> one the big one at the time was RRS Discovery, and there's it's, there's now a new Discovery. But over the first five years, we did well. I did probably five or six trips on that, and plus trips on Greek vessels and Norwegian vessels and things like that. And I, you know, I had no ties. I don't really know what I was doing. I'm just every time Monty Preed was was the professor, and every time Monty came in and said we've got a job on, I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever, just sign me up. <laughs> so, so, I ended up living this sort of hobo lifestyle of just jumping on ship after ship with That's ever great. evolving colleagues and ever evolving bits of equipment. And, you know, I was not involved in the science at all. It was like, you know, we need you to do X, Y, and Z. Don't go and do it. And they'll just go and do the best job. We had some good times, bad times, and it worked yeah. out quite well. And then. Did you like going to sea? You, you clearly yeah, loved it. You Clearly, don't get seasick. No, nah, sometimes you do, but yeah. it's, there's ways for dealing with that. What did you like about it? It was interesting. I, I, I remember going back to the story of telling my mom and dad I wanted to be a drummer. I remember there was they still laugh about this because they, they they seem to specifically remember me saying, "Whatever I do in life, I don't want to have to wear a suit to work." But, <laughs> and then you go on a ship and you're like, I'm never going to wear a suit to work if I keep doing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is what I, I just I just like the fact it felt like we were doing something. I you know I I just. Even now, I still struggle with elements of the job where it feels like you're spending a lot of time doing something and there's no tangible output. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. You're just
0: doing stuff. You're just sort of it's filling it Just Yeah. Whereas when you go to sea, you're like, okay, so the lander is built. Here it is. We put it in the sea. It comes back and we have a hard drive now that has X amount of data on it. This is stuff that we didn't have yesterday. We now have it. So you're going and you're collecting and at the end of it, you come back and the boss says, right, what did you do? And it says, well... You know here's 28 surface to sea floor profiles of bioluminescence across the entire Mediterranean and then you just drop that on the desk and go and go there you go yeah, done it very it. cool and that, that felt satisfying i guess it must be the same as like you come like back to the music thing if, if a musician he goes into a studio and works on stuff and comes back and says here's a song you so the effort right. you've put in has something you can hold in your hand and say yeah. i did that over the last month
1: yeah and you play a gig and you can you get sort of the value proposition coming to, to a close right how the song goes over, how the audience reacts.
0: Yeah, I think that, that's what I find satisfying. I, I mean, I couldn't, I just couldn't imagine being someone who's done like finance, for example, who's just churning over other people's yeah. budget accounts and stuff like that. And I don't know, it's not for me. I don't get satisfaction of that. I like to to go and see, do something and, and feel like you've brought something back, you've created something.
1: But you did go on eventually. What persuaded you or drove you eventually to go on to a master's and a PhD degree? <laughs> and and, and, to stay so, and to stay so focused on the deepest parts of the ocean.
0: Well, that was all an accident, too. So the academic side of things, you know, I was absolutely no way interested in an academic career. I just liked the fact I was working on boats and messing around with mechanics and stuff. That was great. I, I wasn't particularly enamoured or impressed by being at a university with lots of PhD students, that whole culture of PhD yeah. students and academia. It wasn't really for me, you know. And uh, anyway, so Monty, my boss, came in after about I don't know six months or something in the job. And he didn't realize that that terribly low salary that I'd applied for with no seven years experience meant that they dropped the salary even more. Oh. Uh, and he came in. And, but, I, I, you know, wh- what can you do? I was living in this horrible place and everything else. I needed a job that was at least interesting and paid the bills. And he came in one day. and I'll never forget it. He came in and he said, yeah, actually, he looked at me and says, I've just found out how much you get paid. And I was like, yeah, I know, sucks. Eh? <laughs> <You> know, <it's, laughs> That's great. Such is life. <laughs> you know? And he said, you know what? I can get you out of this. You know, the stuff that you're designing and building right now and taking to see and all the rest of it. If you write this up in your own time over the next year or so, you could submit it as a master's by research. And if you have a master's degree, they have to give you more money. So I was like, oh, yeah, okay, all right. What's what that? So I'm sort of Googling. I don't think it was even Google at the time. But, you know. Google,
1: get a master's degree.
0: <laughs> I was like, what is a master's degree? I don't know like what a master's degree is. That, I, you know, I wasn't really not interested. It's not something, it's not, masters and PhDs are not something that really exists in industrial design or, or anything yeah. or that kind of thing. it's a practicum.
1: It's all practical.
0: Yeah. So after about six months, I, I wrote it up at night and I was, I was quite getting into it. I thought I quite liked this because, again, it felt like the stuff you're doing during the day and you go back and you you turn it into a, a document and then you go oh, quite like that and you make the figures and you do, and you explain your train of thought and what worked what didn't work so after six months i came and threw on his desk and went there you go "Can I have that master's thing now you're talking about and he was like oh all right and he went away and he came back and he said look you know the good thing about working with monty is he was a biologist physiologist on shallow water fish he got into deep sea quite late on because he absorbed a lot of engineering so he became half an engineer from a biologist and i think he was seeing the same thing evolving here. And he said, uh, you know what, why don't you just take another two years or three years, whatever it was, part time, keep going the way you're going and make it a PhD. And I'm like, you are joking, right? You know, you, you, you know, you're kidding, right? You want me to do a PhD? I'm a drummer. Like, you're talking like, this, about this, PhDs, yeah? Yeah, like, like this lot, you know. All the, there are, so, you know, there's, yeah, the whole weird culture with PhD students at the time. And I'm just like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not one of these guys, you know what I mean? And he said, no, no, it's fine. Once you get a PhD, if if, if you become a doctor, and I'm like, you're not, you're kidding. You, if I do this, you're going to call me doctor, right? Is this is this, how this works? <laughs> And uh, it was, it, it was literally that kind of conversation It's I'm not, I'm not, you know, call me doctor. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever had in my life. So, uh, yeah, so I took it on and I just started writing in the evenings. I had nothing else to do, you know, and, you know, and, and I submitted that and it all went rather well, and then randomly my defense for logistical reasons ended up being in a small town called Helsingor in Denmark
1: yeah
0: and I went into the defense, and they that's where you have to, to do. explain to people what you did. and yeah, you get it's basically an examination, that's a sort of interview of 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 an expert from your own university and an external expert from another university. and they sit down and they they've read it and they've got loads of comments and they can last for two hours to all day to some, some have even gone two days before, you know, and depending on what it is they want you to do. And then you give you a massive list of corrections and comments and all these things. And you have to go away and do all that and then resubmit it. And then you get your thing. Anyway, so I sat there, I was on my own, and then uh, they said, congratu- at the end of it, they're like, congratulations, Dr. Jameson. I was like, oh, Ooh. woo!" Oh, well, that's the thing, you know. <laughs> but, but I think after most PhD defences, there's normally a massive party, and there's yeah. champagne and cakes, and everyone's waiting for you to come out of this room. I just, just sat in a bar on my own in Helsingor, and just sort of sat there going, oh, I don't really know what just happened there. <laughs> so just, it was a really massive anticlimax. It was just like, oh, well, that's kind of cool, and you know. So that Alan, that answer. is
1: the most fabulous PhD story I think I've ever ever heard. I love it.
0: <laughs> it was just a one big happy accident. It was it was all about trying to get. I mean, don't get me wrong. You don't get these things for nothing. I didn't. I did exactly no. what you have to do to get it. But the reasons for I, I was never chasing it. I was never asking for it. It was just yeah. opportunities came up. So that's what happened there. And then at some point during the PhD, we had a a conference in Aberdeen. This is how, this is how we ended up going, or how I ended up going going really deep was we had a conference in Aberdeen to do with taking photographs of the seafloor. And it, I was involved in a project where we're designing upside down periscopes. So you slam them into the seafloor and you take a photograph of the sediment underneath rather than coring it. So you look at all the different layers and different animals under the sediment. And we're sat in a bar in Aberdeen with some guys from Virginia and from Seattle and from wherever, I can't remember, It's a whole bunch of guys. And it became, one well, after a few drinks, it becomes one of these hero stories, like who's got the deepest photographs? And someone's like, oh, I've got one from 800 And someone's like, well, I've got one from five thousand And this I remember it was Bob Diaz from Virginia. He said, I've got one from six thousand one hundred meters. And we're like, but your camera's only ready to six thousand meters. He's like, Yep, that's how I roll, you know. <laughs> <We're> like, <laughs> and I remember I was sort of sitting speaking to my colleague at times. So, well, how deep, how deep can you go? And they're like, oh, I guess it's probably Mariana, I suppose. Like, All right. And there was a Japanese person at the conference and who worked for Jamstack at the time. said, look, you've got this big Kaiko ROV.
1: Jamstack being the NASA of the ocean for Japan.
0: Yeah, the Japanese marine science and technology place. They have big, big engineering, really yeah. big stuff, big submersibles and ROVs and all sorts of huge fleet of ships as well. Uh, so there was someone there from Jamstack. So the next day we started speaking to them and saying, you know, can we get a go at this Kaiko thing? It's really naively like, because we, we, we want to we go deeper. You know? What's Kaiko? Kaiko was the name of of that deep ROV that was, was the first vehicle to get oh, right. to challenge deep anytime recently and they put a little plaque down there. it was 1995 they got to the bottom with that and they took a core sample and some whatever.
1: Was it tethered? Unfortunately
0: it was lost it was lost in 2003 yeah. so we we pulled together some money to build a camera for it and we finally got the money about a week before Kaiko was lost in a typhoon. <laughs> so so <laughs> so we ended up sitting with this camera on the bench for years and then anyway so after my PhD, I ended up off San Diego on a ship called New Horizon. And while I was at Scripps, and I was just doing it for that particular job. It was just supporting somebody else. It was just building some gear. And
1: Scripps is an of oceanography in San Diego?
0: Yeah. Again, yeah. It's, it's another big one, big oceanographic institute. And uh, the day before we got on the ship, we went to the library. And I was introduced to a guy at the library who was a librarian. And he said, oh, what are you doing here? And I explained And at the time, I can't remember if this was before or after my PhD, I can't remember, but I had did some theoretical designs for full ocean depth camera systems. Uh, And it was really interesting. It's It's almost 36,000 feet, right? 36,000 feet. And what you need are like steel or titanium pressure housing to stop your cameras being crushed. And the interesting bit was the window, because obviously the camera needs to see out. So how you deal with acrylic or perspex or sapphire or glass, under really high pressure. So I did a whole chapter on on how that isn't actually that difficult. Anyway, I spoke to, to this librarian, purely a chance encounter, and he said, oh, you may, I've got something you might be interested in. And it was a, a Russian guy called uh, Georgi Believ wrote up everything the Russians did over the last 50 years, and Scripps had paid it to get it translated. Wow. That's and famous stuff. They printed off a whole bunch of copies, and nobody nobody wanted it. So it's it's the size of a PhD thesis. It's like two inches thick. Wow! And he said the guy died in 1989, I think, or shortly after he wrote this. So this was everything the Russians and the Danish did from 1950 through 1970s, which is the, like the, the the first ever real exploration of of of, Hadel, of really deep stuff. So he gave me that, and I was like, oh, thanks very much. That's really nice of you. You know, that was it. And anyway, so I went on the ship the next day, and there wasn't much going on, and I just read it from cover to cover, and it introduced me to taxonomic rankings to all these different species and families and orders and classes. And because I don't have any formal training in biology, but this had it all laid out. All the critters. So suddenly you realize just spending three weeks on a boat with not much to do, just reading this thing. And then realizing that actually we, you know, we could do this. We could totally do this. Just reading that and no one's done anything. Kaiko, I think had, you know, gone down and, and hit the bottom, but no one's really doing anything. So, so eventually we applied we put together some designs and we applied to me and Monty applied to the UK government. To collaborate with various people who had ships going to the right places and we got the money and it was a big scramble on to build the first lander because i had no for all sorts of reasons i had no support from anyone else i had to do the whole thing myself from start to finish and i built two of them in the end and the race was on to get them onto a german ship in samoa from aberdeen <laughs> and we had like flotation coming from germany we had ballast weights coming from new zealand we had you know just bits of this thing all over the world are going to meet in a dock in Samoa, get on this German ship. We're going to go out to Tonga Trench and throw the whole thing down to six kilometers underwater.
1: So hang on a second. You've mentioned, you said the word Hadel a few times in passing. I, I I'll Just pause for a second and set the stage. Right. Hadel is like, like from the word Hades, meaning the, the depths of hell. What is the Hadel zone again? Where Where is it? How deep is it? How big is it?
0: The Hadel he- the zone is, is anything deeper than six kilometers.
1: Okay, about 20,000 feet.
0: So that, that's the definition. Anything deeper than 6,000 meters. And most of those are the big deep trenches. Everyone's heard of the Mariana, but they're actually about another, depending on your definition of trench and trough and fracture zone, there's there's probably about 40 or 50.
1: How much of the ocean is that
0: deep? How much of the ocean? Not much. Okay. In terms of footprint, it's probably less than 2%. But in volume? terms of the depth range, it's the deepest 45. So it's, it's ah. vertically, it's huge, but horizontally, it's, it's quite small. Okay. But it's significant if you start to think of these areas as being like islands. If you imagine you, you turn the ocean upside down, every one of these, like the, the, the Himalaya is roughly the same volume as the Mariana. So okay. So when wow. you flip it upside down, you know realize that. that the big, oh yeah, the big flat abyssal plains, which span most of the planet are sort of flat, big, huge enormous areas and they are sort of incised by these deep bits and those deep bits are even though they're going the negative to the positive of an island you can think of them as island and things. So so that's what we call Hedel. and that was a a name that was coined in 1951 by a Danish scientist who decided that it was so different beyond 6,000 meters that it deserved its own name yeah. And I think the Russians were calling it the ultra-abyssal at the time. And he decided it, it was it was too unique to be a subcategory of, of somewhere else. So it got his own name.
1: It's way deep and it intellectually and it, it physically is remote from all of us two-footed critters on land and intellectually is very remote. Why is it important to understand or study that place?
0: Because you're always looking for depth-related trends, how things change from the surface to the seafloor. So everything in the ocean the deep sea and most of the planets deep sea by a long long way uh is driven by what's happening on the surface so all that photosynthesis and plankton and phytoplankton and all these warming and co2 absorptions all these wonderful things that happen on the surface are having a controlling control what's happening below it so that's controlling what's happening for most of the planet plus these water masses are huge and they're moving around and they're regulating climate and stuff like that. Plus. The trenches themselves are the only place in the world where two, the trenches are formed when two tectonic plates meet each other head on and one gets forced down below the other one. So that the mud at the bottom of some of these trenches might be 6,000 meters deep
1: and that's getting,
0: that's getting pushed back into the earth's mantle. So if you imagine all this atmospheric CO2 kicking around, all this carbons getting soaked up by the ph- uh, phytoplankton, zooplankton, seagrasses, kelp forest, all the rest of it, all that stuff eventually starts to sink and all that carbon sinks to the bottom. Trenches are a sort of V-shaped cross-section, so it all accumulates at the bottom and then it's the only place in the world where it's disposed of. And it's very slow. I mean, it's like eight centimetres a year these things are moving, but the volume of carbon, which is getting pushed disposed of in the earth's mantle is huge. I mean, the other thing is the depth the recycling. trends as well. We're, we're looking at how how does things change from the sweet spot on the surface down to the bottom? And, and you can't you can't extrapolate easily in deep water stuff. So it's better to just treat the ocean as one whole body of water and not say that we like the surface, but we don't like the deep bit because most of it is the deep bit. And, it's, and that's the psychological problem with getting people to engage with deep seas because we're saying you love the top 50 meters because that's where you go fishing, you go diving, you do scuba diving, all these other things. but uh, you get to 200 meters beyond that, it's a deep sea. And people think, well, that's not of concern to me. Basically, well, actually it is because most of your planet is that.
1: <laughs> so it, sh- <laughs>
0: it should be of a concern. And the other thing I don't like about the, this thing about the surface versus the deep sea is in terms of responsibility to try and understand how the planet functions and what lives in it. If you imagine, and it's all driven by people's weird relationship with depth. And I think it's because we're air-breathing mammals. We just hate the idea of depth. We call it deepest, darkest spheres for a reason. We hate depth and we hate the dark. And unfortunately, the deep sea has has all of that. All of both. (laughs) So the problem there is if you were to say, for example, from now on, let's go back to when we knew nothing about the rainforests. I said, right, here's the entire Amazon rainforest. We're going to study everything in the first 200 meters. And the rest of it, forget it. It's just deep forest. It's just monsters of the trees. We've got no interest in that whatsoever because, let's face it, none of us are going to really ever go beyond 200 meters into this forest. So we'll just write off the rest of the Amazon basin beyond 200 meter mark oh that's a great analogy but that's exactly what you do for most of the planet you know and the same with antarctica you wouldn't just go at 200 meters into antarctica and go right see the the rest of this entire continent which by the way is minuscule relative to the deep sea forget it it's not worth it's not worth the hassle it's too difficult it's expensive and let's be honest it doesn't give us anything in terms of reward but when it goes deep we automatically go oh we don't belong there forget it no that's fine i'm happy to ignore that
1: well, it is hard to get there. And, you know, if you don't have the right kind of gear that you're designing, you know, you you would die there. But I want to touch one more moment on trying to get a sense of scale. I read somewhere that trying to get a sense of the scale of the deep sea, meaning 4,000 meters, 12,000 feet and deeper, mm-hmm. that just just in the North Atlantic, the area of the ocean that is that big is bigger than the moon. Is that right? Bigger yes. than the surface of the moon.
0: Really? Yeah. The surface of the moon is less than the North Atlantic. Yeah, The moon's tiny. The diameter of the moon is less than the width of Australia. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And the size of the deep sea, the size of the deep sea in the Pacific is the size of 26 Australia's. Wow. I've worked it out that science fact now.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> other biases about the deep sea? I mean, the one I always think of, because like you, I've heard this trope more times than I can count we know more about our moon than we know about the deep sea. And you know, it's usually said by oceanographers who are trying to use it to say there should be more investment in studying yes. the ocean. I And I sympathize completely with that view, but I'm not sure it's true. I mean,
0: utter nonsense.
1: Yeah. It, comes,
0: it comes from uh, a guy who first wrote that in 1956. So he wrote this long before the moon landings, long before we knew very much about the deep sea, but it's such a nice nugget yeah. that it just will not go away. Even my current employers tweeted a picture or a video of me and my colleague recently and the caption they put on it was we know more about the surface of the moon yeah. than the deep sea. And it's like, you know, I've done a whole podcast, I do tutorials and undergraduate levels on these there's a there's a whole there's a few of them. That's probably the worst one, but it's one of these statements that will just not go away. And even if it was true, what are you basing knowing about on? And people now say, well, it's about we have better maps of Mars than we have the deep sea, but that's not what he was talking about in 1956. And having a map of the seafloor means nothing. Having a map of Mars means nothing. Is whether that map tells you information about Mars or about the deep Mm. sea is what matters. Just collecting images isn't really it. And if you can get a satellite into orbit... You can map a planet fairly quickly if it's got no yeah. atmosphere or ocean. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah.
0: I mean, right now, I, you know, tonight I can go out tonight and I can see fifty percent of the moon with my own eyes. Right. So it's quite easy to produce a map. of the- <laughs>
1: Observing and measuring through the vacuum of, of space is way, way easier than through yeah. layers the the big blue blanket of the ocean. You can use lasers and light, and you have to use sound in the ocean. It's a lot harder.
0: What frustrates me is, is uh, you wonder why you're saying that. Is Is—is that one of these statements that is one, because it feels like we're shaming ourselves and saying, you know, you need to invest more money in deep sea. When I hear it, I think I find it quite offensive. It's like, no, actually, I know quite a lot about the deep sea. So yes, you <laughs> are you telling me I'm not working hard enough? What's, what's your problem? Like, it, you know? <laughs> I think I've worked pretty hard. You know, I've done my bit. You know, don't keep telling me I know nothing about my own subject. I do. So we, do, we know loads about the deep sea. Loads, of, loads and loads and loads and loads. There's thousands of thousands of papers on deep sea. And I think by constantly telling people we know nothing about it, is damaging because it keeps that feeling of a frontier that we don't understand. It's a place that we shouldn't go. It keeps it keeps that distance between us. And then what we should mm. be saying is the deep sea is amazing. Let's go see it. Let's go and do stuff in it. Let's let's understand it. Let's share it in such a way that people really get to enjoy it. But instead it's like, oh no, we know nothing about this. It's a weird place that we shouldn't be there. We don't exist. And the, the second thing that really, really gets me going is the constant referring to monsters of the deep and creatures of the deep. It's even in Blue Planet, the tone and the word changes between the coral reef episode and the deep sea episode. It's yes. basically subconsciously telling you, this is not for you. You do not belong here. This is not something you should care about. This is evil. It's underworldly. It's abyssal. It's gloomy. And yes, it's for entertainment's sake. And that's what the deep sea has become. I think it's just become entertainment. It's spooky entertainment. And it's difficult when you're trying to get the planet to care about it to undo the damage that that has already done.
1: It's interesting you use the word spooky. I've often thought about Homer's line of the cold, gray, fish-bearing sea. So the human relationship to space is: everyone has the moon above them, everyone has stars above them. Every every little kid is laid on their back and daydreamed or looking up at the skies. It's sort of up and out and lifting and aspirational. And yes. as you said, every bit of literature and metaphor we have. At our fingertips and in our experience about the sea is cold, grey, dark, gloomy, misty. And it's down.
0: So when we're upset, we use the phrase, I'm feeling down. Yeah. And there there is this positive and negative that down is negative and up is good. So the, the 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 stars and the planets are are seen as a positive thing. We can go when going back to our fear of deep water, that's because I think evolutionarily we have experienced that firsthand. People haven't experienced what it's like to be in a vacuum. I mean it's equally as horrible right you're, you're gonna die in a vacuum as quickly as you're gonna die underwater but we don't care we still look up and go oh it's amazing glorious majestic yeah.
1: wouldn't it be great to be there
0: yeah but <laughs> yeah. when they deep sea, the first question anyone ever says when you talk about going underwater is, go, was it scary it was a horrible walk into no, that exactly or like that. yeah but Where in space you? they're like oh yeah i'd love to be a space man space wants to kill you as much as the sea does <laughs> right?
1: just... absolutely true <laughs> So you've been you've building landers for many years to let scientists get information and data from the deep sea without physically having to go there. You also have gone there in submersibles that can take people that deep. When when was the first time you did
0: that? The submersibles came relatively on because there wasn't any. Yeah, was it with Victor
1: Vescovo the first time?
0: Wasn't with Victor. It was in his sub. It was with uh, the head of Trion. and it was Patrick Lahey. So. Technically, the first time we made an attempt was, uh, so I got enjoy- involved with the Five Deep's expedition, which was funded by Victor Vescovo, who created a submarine built by Triton so Submersibles that can go to the deepest places.
1: How did you get involved with that? I mean, I got this I got this email out of the blue that invited me in. What was your story?
0: <laughs> so for 10 years or so, we'd been going around all over the world with the landers, and we discovered the deepest fish, the deepest this, the deepest that. We'd started producing the first big data sets, genomics, all the rest We're building up the first big, huge, multi-trench global data set on, on scientific exploration of these things using remote systems. And somewhere in all that, uh, an opportunity came up to write a book on the Halo Zone, which was just, I mean, in hindsight now, it's it's kind of grossly out of date, but it came out in 2015 and I had submitted it in 2013. And I remember my head of school at the time, she said to me, don't waste your time writing a book because books don't mean anything. You won't get evaluated for that. And I remember thinking that was really sad that the universities are discouraging scientists from writing books now. You <laughs> think that's books are sort <laughs> of... A, something mm,
1: bad about that, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's frowned upon to write a book. But so I did that. Again, I did that in my own time, just because yeah, of resentment or whatever, I don't know. But anyway, so I, I wrote this book and then realized that there's obviously no money to be made whatsoever in writing academic books. That was the first lesson. <laughs> don't, this is not going to make you a millionaire. And then... Uh, I still think it's quite funny when she said all that matters are scientific publications, books don't make any difference. So at some point on the other side of the world, Victor's putting together his plan with Triton and so on. And ultimately, what he wanted to do was go around the world, dive the deepest point in each ocean and then sell it all. Sell the ship and the sub, the works. And I think it was Triton that said to him, if you want to sell it at the end, it's you're going to need to demonstrate as some kind of scientific component to it. Because at that point, it was nothing more than a hero diver. It was to get them down, back up, and say, I've done it. There were there was no science plan at all in the whole expedition. It still wasn't really. But, so they just basically Googled it and they came across the book. And Patrick phoned me up one day and says, right, we need a scientist. You've, you're the guy that wrote the book. You're it. And then we started talking about landers. So I ended up designing the landers as well for them.
1: For my listeners' benefit, Victor Vescovo, entrepreneur, investor, who commissioned this submersible that can go to the very, very bottom of the ocean, the deepest point, commissioned the ship that can carry it around and engaged Alan and his robotic landers to add the science program and headed off to, first of all, find the deepest point in each of the five oceans and then get there.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. So the first thing we did was myself and colleagues did a desktop study of where the five deeps actually should be. And that sort of prompted Victor into investing in a multi-beam echo sounder, which is a whole mounted system that can map and measure the depth and stuff like that. So, yeah, and 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 second phone call I ever got was from somebody in the project who phoned me up and said, you will never get in that submarine. So just so you know that you're you're the chief scientist of this expedition, there's a budget of zero dollars and you will not be allowed to dive in the submarine. So I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound that attractive, but okay, you know, I, I know enough about it. So my, my 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 feeling when I joined was that there's I don't know, it came quite evident early on that it was still a very experimental submarine and it might not produce anything particularly interesting. But the landers were really good. So, you know, we made a quite a lot of progress early on when the landers. And uh, at some point, before we even got to the first of the five deeps, Victor, we're in New York, I think, having dinner somewhere. And Victor said, I think we should get Jameson down on the Puerto Rico trench on the first deep. I'm like, "Oh, okay, that's new. So things were starting to change already. So I thought that was great. And then Puerto Rico turned out to be a, not the best trip in the world. They got the first five deep in, but only just. And it, it wasn't a pleasant first deep. Then we went down to Antarctica. Did you dive? No, no, not at all. Uh, the sub just it just wasn't ready. It was, just, it was, these guys were working all hours trying to get this thing up and running. And it, it felt like it, they needed another year just to really iron it out. But it, there was this huge pressure on to get it done. And, you know, they did it and it was great. They got the bag number one. Then we went down to Antarctica and Antarctica probably a bit too late in the season so the weather wasn't great and you know we did some work and what we got was amazing it was really really good and victor did his deepest dive on his he wants to do them all solo so unfortunately the cameras didn't work either so the, this, scientifically the sub produced nothing and then we started running away from a storm and then a, a, a weather window opened up and he said do you want to dive i was like to the deepest point in antarctica and i was like yeah okay let's do it so we we did it and we got in the sub and the sub got took a wave uh the way in which we were deploying the sub at that point was not optimal i would say compared to what we're doing now and the sub hit the back of the ship pretty hard but we went for it anyway and we got to about 400 meters underwater and we got a call from the ship saying abort 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 get out so we came back up and that was that very disappointing so i got to 400 meters under antarctica never got to the bottom so that was very disappointing. At that point, I, I was ready to completely just leave the whole program because I didn't think at that point that the Five Deeps was really going anywhere. There was all sorts of problems. There was a lot of people all trying to do something, and it was it, it felt like the it wasn't going to produce a lot of science for the for the for the amount of time we were going to spend on this thing. Because at that point, I'd already spent about four or five months away from yeah. home, and to, to come back with essentially nothing.
1: There were a lot of competing interests at that stage. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, I stuck with it. And I remember I decided, right, I'll do the Indian Ocean one. I won't invite any more people on board. So, you know, I'll take the hit if it all goes wrong. But we'll, I'll do Java and see, because that was a kind of short one. And then so Victor did his dive and then said, right, Patrick Lahey from Triton will we'll do the science dive and we'll do a science dive. And I said, OK, I want to go up down the deepest point and up the wall and look for chemosynthetic habitats, which are bacterial, interesting bacterial things going on at the bottom of the trench. Over that whole trip, it just got better and better and better and better. The atmosphere felt better, people were gelling better, the ship was working better, the sub was working better, the data coming in from the landers was just phenomenal. Just we're finding octopus 2,000 meters deeper than any other octopus, right? You know, multiple times. And there was like things on that we're filming animals we'd never expected to see at those depths. It was a beautiful place. And eventually the day came for the dive. And as per always, I just never get you never ever got my hopes up for any dive. I've done 13 now. But of the 13 I've done, I think I've also done six that have been aborted underwater. So, you know, I, I think you don't get your hopes up because the operation is a complex one and it's lots of factors and there's no point getting too excited because you know that it could get pulled at any moment so for that one I was I was even still on deck just going "Nah, it's still not going to happen something's going gonna, something's to gonna happen in the next <laughs> Always four does. minutes that's going to stop this <laughs> you know yeah, and we did it and we had such a good time with such a laugh it was just me and Patrick in the submarine and you how- know the hatch was leaking all the way down at the bottom it never stopped leaking until 5,000 meters underwater and you would think that should be a scary experience but when you know someone like Patrick who, who belongs underwater
1: who designed and he didn't buy, build it but he designed it how deep did you go on that one?
0: 7,180 meters, I think.
1: Where did you first go deeper than 10 kilometers?
0: Was that Uh, Mariana? Mariana. So shortly after Java, I decided to stay with the program, went to Mariana. Again, no science dives, Challenger Deep. There still hasn't been one as far as I'm aware. So Victor did his two solo dives and then Triton did one for themselves. And then they went down with a guy from DNVGL, which is a company that certifies the sub to say what depth it's good to go. So that was all fine. And then at the end... Nobody expected to do four dives on Challenger Deep within a week, right? Because up until that point, they would only ever been two people.
1: And the, yeah, the context here is kind of amazing. Four dives in a week. What had yep. happened before that was two dives 30 years apart.
0: Yeah. I mean, so... So 1960, Don went down. Don Walsh and Jack Picard went down for 20 minutes and saw nothing. And then James Cameron 2013- went down and... 2013 spent one hour or something like that yeah and maybe it was interesting but it, it,
1: both subs were damaged and never dived that deep again
0: yeah and then it. you
1: turn around and in 2019 you've got a sub that can do four dives to the deepest deepest point
0: in the ocean within a week that's like oh it gets better we could have done more we could have done 10 but it, for the schedule meant that we had to leave but anyway so they did the four and we're all sort of looking at each other, going, "But we've we've got we've we've still got a few days to go here." This, you know, the, I guess That's we expected drowning. it to be, <laughs> yeah. So they said, "Well, wh- where do you want to go? Do, do challenge deep?" And I, I had done a, something like fifty lander deployments in the next deepest point in Mariana, which is called Serenity. And there's lots of interesting reasons why to go to Serenity. But to be honest, I don't find Challenge Deep particularly interesting. So Serena Deep is slightly shallower. It's 10,720 metres as opposed to 10,920 metres, whatever it is. It's so a couple hundred metres difference. So I said, okay. And this is where my 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 inner self is like, I've just been offered a trip to Challenger Deep. I could do this. But if I do that, I'm doing it for the hero diving reasons, not for the scientific reasons. There's a scientific reason to go to Serena, but not Challenger. So I'll go to Serena Deep. So I'm not one of the... You don't need the badge. People have been a challenge to but I don't really care. And one of the cool things was was Don Walsh, who was the the pilot of the Trieste in nineteen sixty. He was with us, and uh, he's a good friend of mine now. And he had these like Trieste medallions that you get from the U.S. Navy, and I think it was his last one he had. And he came into my office and he he, he sort of shuffled in and put one on my desk. and Said, "Do hey, you have that?" I said, I can't take that. You know, I'm not even doing Challenger. I mean, I, I, it's amazing how, how by doing Serena and Challenger, it still, it almost haunts me. People keep saying, but you're the guy who didn't do Challenger Deep. And uh Don gave me the medallion from Trieste. I said, there you go. I said, why are you giving me that? He says, because you're the only guy in the world who's been offered a trip to Challenger Deep and didn't take it. <laughs> like, that would be
1: done. That would be done. <laughs>
0: yeah. So that that actually means more because you know, doing it for the right reasons. So anyway, oh, yeah. so we, I did that one with uh, Victor and that was ten thousand seven hundred and something. And that, that was again that was amazing. We found these big sulfur mounds, you know, just stuff that we weren't expected to see. And that that well, that was really good. And then we went on to do a whole bunch more.
1: So so did the 10K feel momentous at all, or was it just another fascinating day at the office in the deep, deep sea?
0: I don't know, people keep ask me stuff like this because I think I'm, I'm doing it for two different reasons. One, you know, part of me is thinking, right, this four-hour window we've got on the bottom, we have to make the most of this because the the, the the frustrating thing about the five beats was we could have done 25 dives in a row, but they just kept it down to one or two, three, whatever. So you've got to try and get the most out of it. and no one's really done this before. So you don't really know where to go. Someone's like, okay, you're the scientist, you tell me, am I going forward, backwards, left, right? It's like, I actually don't really know. I think it's just about covering ground and absorbing it all. So you've got that sterile kind of, we need to get this right scientifically. But there's this little piece of you inside going, we're 10,000 meters. (laughs) This is is awesome, you know? And uh, you're you're trying to soak it in, but to be honest, I don't remember half of it. I think the the adrenaline's all over the place. That when you, I think back on it, time flies so quickly. And, you know, we have these 50-minute calls you have to make to the surface. And it feels sometimes like only a minute, literally a minute has passed. And it's, no, no, that's the next 50-minute call. Like oh,
1: I remember feeling very tickled that I was eating my tuna fish sandwich at 33,000 feet underwater. Like, oh, yeah, everybody does this.
0: Yeah, but there there are a couple of times I've done since, which which I think mean more to me than the really deep ones. I mean, we did 10,000 meters in the Philippines as well last year. That wasn't especially good. That was, that was basically the plastic bag dive. All, the whole site was just littered with plastic bags.
1: Do you see something anthropogenic at the bottom of every one of the trenches you've been to?
0: Yes. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. Oh. Just litter. Yeah.
1: Like, like physical, like not stuff you would see in the guts of an animal under a microscope. No, no, like no, no. Full plastic bags.
0: Full on plastic bags. Yeah, we've chased plastic bags thinking they're jellyfish and they're not. They're just an eco-friendly plastic bag.
1: At 33, 36,000 feet?
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah. Every dive. Every single dive, yeah. Uh, A lot, yeah.
1: What's the most amazing critter you've seen that dazzles you the most?
0: I love the Dumbo octopus at 7,000 metres. I love that one because if you imagine, if you ask someone on the street, think of the deepest tentacled animal in the world. Their, Their imagination is going to just fill in this massive Jules Verne type of like, ah! Actually, it's about the size of a puppy, and it looks lovely, and it's got big ears, and it's called Dumbo. And it's like the, the, the most hardcore, deepest ever tentacled animal on the planet. And it just looks like it wants to give you a cuddle.
1: It does. What? They're amazing, yeah. I
0: mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: It make, and it makes you feel like you're looking at a, at a puppy. What What's yeah. the strangest thing you
0: ever saw? What destructive... So there's a, there's a couple of dives that spring to mind in terms of... I, I, I don't think it's the depth that really gets me. It's what you're looking at. So... One strange one was in 2000, just before COVID really kicked off, the last one we did was the Red Sea, and Victor and I went down to a brine pool. And a brine pool is essentially, you get them in places like the Mediterranean the Red Sea, where historically the entire sea has evaporated. But you can only evaporate the water, you can't evaporate the salt. So you end up with all the salt from the last ocean lying in pools at the bottom of what's now the new one. So they're like lakes, you can actually poke them. It's heavier than the seawater, right? Yeah, it's really dense. It looks like a garden pond underwater, and you can—it you, ripples when you touch it, and it's just super, oh my super dense. And there's lots of little vent systems around it, and the colours are just weird. And there's like a weird smoky haze over the brine pool; like it's really kind of odd. And th- that one was only 1,200 meters. That's the last, the, by by a long way, the shallowest one I've ever done. But it was bizarre. It's just that, you know, you're looking out and think, you know, we could be on Venus here. This is just just geologically off the charts, as opposed to some of the deep sites which don't have a lot of structure. But the weirdest one was last year, I took the ship and the sub on a charter off West Australia. And we did, I think, something like 10 dives to a fracture zone and an escarpment in the East Indian Ocean. And we came across a manganese nodule field, which is a is where everybody wants deep sea mining essentially manganese nodules are black balls look like cannonballs uh, and they take millions of years to form and that's they're also full of cobalt which is one reason why they need to wanting to be mined so we can make car batteries and all this sort other of stuff but normally when you get to the sea floor it's a kind of brown sandy muddy landscape with stuff on the go when you get to the manganese nodule fields, they only form between four and 6,000 meters. And there are literally billions and billions and billions and billions of cannonballs all lined up in a perfect formation across the seafloor. Wow. That is the weirdest thing. I mean, me and the pilot are like looking at each other going, you know what? This is, <laughs> I know we're both grown men here, but this is actually spooky. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it was just like, it looks like someone did it. It looks like an art installation. Right, And wow. it's 6,000 meters deep. And you're like, this is not real. This is just the weirdest thing. And it goes on for miles and miles and miles and miles, you know, tens of thousands of miles of black balls just lined up on the sea floor, round. around.
1: I have to ask you one other thing that ties back to the space environment. You know, in the space arena, there's always this tension and debate, sometimes contentious, about sending astronauts versus just using robots. Mm-hmm. And... You know, there are those who will argue that telepresence, you know, the ability of you know bandwidth and visual systems to sort of let you feel like you're there where the rover is on Mars or you're right where the robot is. They're good enough now that nothing is lost in the experience if you just mm. send the robots. And, you know, since what you're after is understanding and data and information, much higher yield, much lower cost, much lower risk. I'm wired differently. To me, there's there's something important and meaningful about being there. I wouldn't want you to send me pictures of my child's wedding instead of being there, for example. I mean, it's it's that hmm. kind of thing. But you've, you've been to probably almost every deep, deep point on the planet, either sending a lander or diving. Mm-hmm. How do you think about that? Do you feel like you've been to a trench if you, air quotes, only dropped a lander? Or is it different and, and does it matter that you go?
0: It's a good question because it's something I'm, I wouldn't say struggling with, but it's something that I haven't had to deal with until I got involved in the five deeps and pressure drop and so on. Because normally I would say use remote systems all the time. I would rather have an AUV down there for one solid week mapping huge areas of seafloor than dive in a sub for four hours. Because the amount of data and understanding you get from four hours is nothing compared to an RV that can stay down constantly for 48 hours. I, I will hold my hands up and say, I went into the five deeps with the wrong attitude. I went in there because they asked me to be the scientist and I went in there with a scientific hat on. And when it became clear that a lot of, uh, most of the diving was just gonna be so I can say I'm the deepest guy, I didn't like that. I think that's what a waste. Why, 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 go, why go to all this effort to go to the bottom of a trench just so you can say I'm the deepest guy? As I say, why not go there 20 times and just record everything in the trench, right? So it's, it's this battle between adventurism, exploration, and science, and they get mixed up a lot. So adventurism, you go down to the bottom, come back up again say, I've experienced this, I have this, that's adventurism. Exploration is when you go there and you find out something new, or you've mapped it, or you've you've, you've brought something back for everybody else. And science is when you actually understand and then can then predict various elements of this thing. And they get messed up. So. After a while, I think what happened on Five Deeps was Victor got more into the science and I started to realize that, this, why can't we do adventurism? I mean, the scientific community are quite negative about the idea of science tourism. And then part of me thinking, well, why not? Scientists are not police of the ocean. If, if my mum wants to see a hydrothermal event, why can't she go in a sub and go and see a hydrothermal event because she wants to? Because I think if you want, if, if society is going to develop a relationship with the deep sea, on a scale that is almost unimaginable, it it shouldn't be so elitist that to experience it, you only get to experience it if you're a scientist. Why can't anybody just go down and do it? So for for me, there's, there's a little piece of me that thinks, I feel like I've gained a much greater experience or much greater understanding of these ecosystems by having been there. My issue is that I don't know how to translate that to somebody else. Right. so if you told me if you gave me a, a a story about your daughter's wedding and you gave me it written down on a piece of paper I don't think I still get the difference of what you're talking about because i it's it's yeah. a personal thing yeah. And it's the personal bit that then drops back down to the adventurism bit it's like you've had a good time you understand it better but unless you can somehow project that to other people in an effective way it's just it just remains something that you've done and you've enjoyed and i, I let's say I don't feel guilty about that because I think it is my job to understand these things. So I feel like I'm I'm a better place to, to understand them having done it, but I still don't know where that's going in my head.
1: Yeah. It only scales one by the each from the inside out. Right. I mean, you you want to find a way to scale it more rapidly and share it in a way that has the same kind of connection that you feel by being there. But how do you, do that except one by the each?
0: Yeah, because, I mean, one of the things that got me was when we did the Java Trench Dive, the first one I did, historically, most of my career, the big moments of my career have been to do with the fish. I was the first person ever to film a fish at those depths. We found the deepest fish like seven times over and we named it and all the rest of it. And snailfish particularly are the little pink things that live in the bottom of trenches. They've been something very personal for me. I mean, I've missed the births of one of my children because I was chasing these things off. You know, they, you know, I've, I've, it feels something quite close to me. But then sitting in the submarine, you know, and we're going up the slope in the in Java Trench, and we saw one, which was a new species. There's, it, there's, there are no records of hadle snailfish from the entire Indian Ocean. And what got me was, we were both going in the same direction. So I was wondering, well, where, where is this guy going on a Tuesday Yeah, afternoon? I know where
1: I'm going. Where are you going?
0: Well, yeah, you wouldn't get that. You wouldn't get that from a camera because the camera, you're like, okay, we've got a snowfish here. So there's a latin long and a depth of where these things exist. But when you're swimming alongside it, you're like, well, hello. Well, where are you going? Why? why what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's just its just a tiny little realization that that's what, that's what the difference is, is that you are now in that world rather than studying that world.
1: But I think scuba divers know that. I mean, you can see pictures of sea turtles or whatever, but to be there with that creature and be near it and maybe swimming in formation with it, to me, there's some sense of kinship that it awakens in me that I know really matters. And you've been touching this point the whole way along, this bias that makes us think and feel we're so separate from the sea, from the deep sea, there's no
0: sense of intimacy. Yes, right? you, exactly. don't, you, you don't get to to smell and to touch and to feel this whole environment, and until you do that, it's easy to just write off and go. Oh, I don't really care. It's not. It's not my problem. I'm. Just... And yeah. that that's the issue. And the only way to the closest thing to to resolving that is to get people underwater. And I don't. I'm really uncomfortable with the idea of that. The only people who are allowed to go underwater are super wealthy people and scientists. You know, I just put anybody underwater. But the, then the issue is that the submersibles are always going to be mega expensive. And that's something comes back to industrial design, maybe. It's just like, let's try and think of a, a way of getting more submersibles out there that don't cost millions and millions and millions of dollars and, and try and build up that relationship that is just lacking. Because, you know, as I say, most of the planet is deep sea. And it's amazing how most people don't even know that. <laughs> it's, yeah, they don't. It's, it's not even a case of don't care about that. It's, these yeah. wouldn't have even crossed our mind that when you, when right. you see that big blue, bit. most of that's four thousand meters underwater.
1: There's a lot said these days about the circular economy. It strikes me you are living the circular career path. It keeps coming back to design to have, you know how to design things that let us get different places, do different things, bring more people along, share the experience. It's a very fun yeah. you're living in.
0: I think we're an interesting sort of crossroads well for me anyway is 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 to it would be easy to just keep going down the scientific academic path of just going out collecting data writing it up putting it in scientific literature i think what's opened my eyes to this submersible crowd i mean there's, there's there's also big things happening now in the next five years as well is to try and blow apart all of that and start to look i've just employed someone for a year to look more into the psychology of why we don't like deep sea or why we struggle with depth i mean the the, the other one I, I i use quite often was you know, going back to the, the rainforest or the other, or, or, you know, you wouldn't only study the bottom 200 meters altitude and declare everything above 200 meters above sea level as being weird, is the concept of scale and distance is something we struggle with. So if you imagine 11 kilometers is, is Challenger Deep. When you tell people Challenger Deep is 11 kilometers or 36,000 feet, people freak out. Like, oh my God, that's so deep, it's unreal. You turn that on its side, turn it 90 degrees, it's only half the length of Manhattan. <laughs> as, yeah. as a distance, it's not that it's not far that away. Much. Yeah, it's nothing. It's you know, I I probably drive more than 11 kilometers a day, right? Yeah. It's, I, a huge realizing.
1: number of people in North America commute multiple times that distance yeah. every day. So as, as the a
0: distance day. from A to B, it is not scary nothing. in the slightest. It's just because it goes to the bit, the part of the planet we're the most uncomfortable with. Yeah, and that's the difference.
1: Alan, I've kept you a bit over intended time. This has just been. Trust me, I have more questions and. What we need to do is find a time we actually can be together, either you know, at a bar sharing a beverage, or out at sea on the the off hours, and carry on sharing stories. I would love to have that happen sometime. Yeah, I would much prefer it happens because I get to Western Australia, than that you come to <laughs> Columbus, Ohio.
0: <laughs> well, I just heard yesterday that WA, West Australia, are actually going to open their borders on March third.
1: Well, then. We just might for those have who don't know,
0: West Australia is like the last bastion of no COVID in the world. So we're all under lockdown constantly.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all that you've done, for helping us understand the deep sea and bringing it to light and to life and for giving me so much of your time today.
0: That's right. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to com.